It's so good to be with you and, uh, and have opportunity to speak with you again. It's been a while since I've been back, and so it's, it's nice to be here this morning. Also, I want to tell you how much I appreciate your giving David some time away. I don't know that you completely always understand what it might feel like to be responsible for uh, feeling that you have uh, something to speak into the lives of so many people. And uh, sometimes that can be a little bit of a weight over time. And you know, it's like a rubber band. If you keep it stretched out, like if you keep it doing this, it'll work for a while. But if you leave it stretched out and don't let it relax after a while, it just gets brittle and breaks. And so I appreciate your giving Dave some time away to rest and renew and study and have his heart refreshed. And I know you'll be grateful when he, when he returns. And thank you for inviting me. I, although I am feeling a little uncomfortable, I, I, it's like, wasn't last week like Hawaiian shirt day? And next week is a barbecue. And this week is just kind of really kind of blah. So, so, uh, so but it's good, it's good to be with you. I want to I just tell you quickly, I think one of the last times I was here, I was asking you to pray with me about sale of property in Bellingham. Well, that property sold. And we have, we have during the last nine months, replanted our church in Bellingham. We, we've been in Bellingham, Washington for over 100 years. And so uh, for us not to have an active church in Bellingham has been uh, something we didn't think we should let stand. And so our newest church plant is in Bellingham. Ryan and Bodana Fasani moved there with their four children. And I would love it if you would remember them in your prayers. Um, the scripture passage this morning we want to use as foundational for, for what I have to say to you is found in, in Romans chapter 5. And uh, I don't know, do you usually stand f- to read the word? Well, let's do that. I don't know that that's anything you always have to do, but if that's your tradition, let's do that in honor of the word. Uh, it starts with chapter 5, therefore. And now since it starts with therefore, whenever you see therefore, you should always look up the page and see what it's there for. So let me just explain the first four chapters of Romans to you while you're standing. (laughs) It goes like this. We're in a lot of trouble. All of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us have a problem with sin. God's told us what we should do about that. He gave us the law, but it doesn't help. It just helps us know what we did wrong, but it doesn't help us do right. And God has provided for us in Jesus Christ a way to be part of his family by being people like Abraham, by being people who trust in God by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And then Paul says, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace by which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us the word of the Lord for the people of God. So here we have this passage that tells us we have peace with God. Do you? Do you have peace with God? 
I remember uh, I had an appointment in my office, saw that Russell was coming. He was a member of my board, and, and he was going to come. We had just returned from a, a mission trip that he had gone on. In fact, Russell loved to go on mission trips, and so he would go any time we had a work and witness trip anywhere. Russell was one of the first to sign up. And Russell came and sat in my office one morning, and he said, Jerry, I, I, I just don't know what's wrong. And I said, well, well, tell me a little more about that. And he said, well, sometimes when we're on a mission trip, he said, you know, when we're all together and we're doing this project and, and we're working with the people, he said, I feel so close to God. But he said, most of the time, I don't. Most of the time, I come and go to church, and I, and I, and I, I come to church because that's what I've always done, and, and I come to church, but just to be honest, something's not right. Something is missing. I'm just going through the motions most of the time, but, but coming back from the work and witness trip this time reminded me of how much I feel that most of the time, just mostly don't feel very close to God. Lots of friends at church love the things we do. Come to worship. I've done that my whole life. I just don't feel very close to God. And it bothers me. Well, that's a good thing. And I remember bumbling around in my office a little bit because I liked him. I, he, he's a good, faithful church member. I, there's nothing wrong with him. And so I just kind of tried to reassure him that he was fine. Oh, Russell, you're, you're, a, you're a great, great member of the congregation. You don't have things to be concerned about. You, why, you're, you're at men's breakfast. You're, you're, you help with all the youth activities where we need things set up. Anything that goes wrong at the church, you're the person who can help us fix it. You, you give us great advice. He was an insurance agent. You give us great advice about our insurance. You're a great board member. You're a great member of the trustees on the board. I, you're, let me just reassure you that God is with you. He loves you. And I prayed some kind of prayer over him that God would reaffirm in his heart how much he was loved. And patted him on the shoulder and sent him on his way. I want you to know that conversation has troubled me ever since. It has troubled me ever since. There are several things about it that bother me. One of them is, I don't think I was a very good pastor to him that day. I don't think I answered his question. Number two is that part of the time I could identify with him. Part of the time, I could sense what he was sensing. I go through the motions of church. I, I, I get ready for church every Sunday. I, 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 I preach, I, 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 and I sing, and we do what we do, and we shake hands, and I try to make sure everybody's happy. And, and sometimes in the middle of that, I wonder, have I lost the presence of God? Have I lost the peace of God? So sometimes, maybe his question bothered me a little more than I wanted to think about. But also, I think the answer that I gave him, which was, well, you're fine. Well, you're fine. Everything's fine. You're all right. Everything's good. Uh, and God loves you. He's gracious to you. He's got mercy for you. All those things were good. But I think I fell short of answering his question. How can we know we have peace with God? How can we have peace with God and peace with ourselves? I don't know about you, but some days the person I have the most trouble having peace with is me. And sometimes when I'm not at peace with God, well, truthfully, all the time, when I'm not at peace with God and I'm not at peace with me, 
I make trouble for others. I'm a problem for others. Isn't that true? I saw on, 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 uh, on the internet, they were, they were having pastors write the best piece of advice they ever got for ministry. One of the best pieces I got for, was a guy from, named Ray Hans, who'd been district superintendent in Kansas, and I went to see him in the hospital one day when he was ill, and he said to me, Jerry, in ministry, 95% of the problems you have, you'll create for yourself. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, that's encouraging. But I, after all these years, I found it to be pretty true. Most of the problems I create, I create for myself. The person who gives me the most trouble is the one I look at in the mirror in the morning. And when I'm out of sorts with me, and I'm out of sorts with God, I can't be at peace with you. And so how, what kind of advice should I have given Russell on that morning we sat and shared in my office? Well, I had opportunity a few years ago to hear George Barna. Now, I don't know if the name George Barna means anything to you, but the Barna Research Institute has been a, a, a research group that has researched all things related to church and church, fo church folks. So you can see all kinds of Barna surveys. Barna came to a meeting of uh, a consortium of Wesleyan holiness pastors that met, uh, met at actually Northwest University in Kirkland. And that morning, I was sitting there listening to, to, to Barna. I don't know, were you there, Trent, that morning? I was sitting there listening to George Barna, and he said this. He said, I'm going to talk to you this morning about the only thing I talk about anymore. And he said, and I've written this new book, and he had a book, and we all had purchased the book by just our being there. And the book was called Mass Maximum Faith, Live Like Jesus. And, and Barna, rather than writing something devotional, because he was a research person, he said, I have researched the process by which you can be transformed in your life. I researched it. And I went, okay, all right, well, I'm listening. And then he said, most of the things we do in church as a, as a fellowship are good things. We do things that draw us together as a body. We worship together. Those are good things. But most of the things we do are not the things that actually transform us to be like Jesus. Now he had my attention. He said, small groups are great. You ought to be in a small group. It's a great way to be involved in fellowship. It's a great way to get to know people. It's a great way to do good things, to learn and study. But he said, by and large, small groups don't result in transformed lives. Well, wait a minute. I've been pushing small groups for years. And you probably have small groups here. Everybody ought to be a part of a small group. And so somebody said, well, are you saying small groups aren't good? He said, no, no, no. Not saying that, but I'm just saying as far as what it takes to transform your life, small groups really aren't necessary. Research shows they're not that terribly effective. But he said there is one path that I have discovered that leads to a transformed life. And then I was listening. And he put his research up in front of us, and, and here's what he put in front of us. So if you look at this as the steps along the way to a transform, transformed life, what he did was he surveyed thousands of people in America and he put them on this continuum. I think the, way, the best way for you to see this continuum would be if you looked at it and said, um, I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at this as if it were 100 people, okay? So if you know 100 people, Barter Research said, in terms of being transformed and being like Jesus, this is, the, this is where 100 people 
in America would fall, or, or percentage-wise, this is what it would look like. And, and uh, so I went back to the idea that was found when, peop- when, when Jesus was, was asked by the Pharisee. Well, you remember this story. One of the teachers of the law came to him and, and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, of all of the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, Jesus said, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the teacher said, well said, teacher. Uh, The Pharisee said, well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right, saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings. And then in, Mark's, in, in Matthew's passage it says, this fulfills all the law and the prophets is what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. And from then on no one dared ask him any more questions. So if you look at the chart, I, I want to... I want to just, you don't have to tell your neighbor, but this morning as we kind of look at it, would you try to find yourself? Just kind of just say, you know what, I'm going to find myself on this chart. The first, the first number one percent is, is unaware of sin. If you meet a hundred people in America and you talk to a hundred of them, one of them, according to the, 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 the research that Barna did, and he's good at research, one of them would just be kind of just absolutely not aware of, of, of the idea of sin. That scares me a little bit because usually we get aware of the idea of sin about the time we have gained any kind of understanding at all. We find things that cause us to be ashamed. We find things that would make us say, well, I don't want anybody to know about that. But 1% of our population, if out of 100 people, one person you meet, Barna says, is a person who would just say, Right and wrong, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, sociopath comes to mind. The second person is a person, about 16 out of 100 people you would meet, they would say, well, I know things are right and wrong, but I don't care. I'm just going to do as I please. I'm going to live my life according to my desires. I'm going to live my life according to what's good for me. I'm going to live my life according to what I want to do right now. I'm going to live life as it comes. I'm not going to worry about whether you think it's sin or your feelings got hurt. I'm not concerned about anything but how I want to live my life. And and Barna's research said that about 16 out of 100 people that you meet would just simply say, yeah, I, I know things are right and wrong, but I don't care. I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do. Is this, is this tracking with you so far? The next group, the largest group, they're 39% of the population, almost 40% of the population, has an idea of sin, what it is. Now, sin, Scripture, defi- scripture defines sin like th- three ways. Usually you'll find three words in both Greek and Hebrew that have, have a concept of sin, and they are Iniquity, which really is to intentionally do evil, to intentionally be bad, to plot and pull off evil. Uh, 
to do something you know is wrong, to do it on purpose, is iniquity. Iniquity in your heart. I'm going to do this. I don't care. It's what I want to do. I know it's wrong. I'm doing it. Is one kind of sin. The other kind of sin that Scripture describes, and the one we use when we do the Lord's Prayer, is called transgression. A sin that's a transgression is when I, you, when you ought to be able to trust me. You ought to be able to trust me, and I betray you. It's a transgression. So iniquity, it's wrong, I'm doing it. Transgression, you ought to be able to trust me, and you can't. The third one is, is just sin, the word sin, which is, is, by the way, an archery term. You know that. A sin is just an archery term for whatever you're off the bullseye. So however far you're off the bullseye is, is a sin. So if I'm, if I'm shooting at the bullseye and I get it just off the bullseye, it's a slight sin. If the target's over there and I'm aiming over here, well, it's more than a slight sin. And that it has to do with intention of the heart. But a sin just simply means to miss the mark. Iniquity, transgression, to miss the mark. Just not ended up where you wanted to go. Ended up where you should have gone. Sin is sometimes intentional, right? Like iniquity. And sin is sometimes unintentional. I was doing the best I could, and I still sinned. Um, that's why as a Wesleyan, we talk about sin as being sin properly so called is a, is a willful transgression against the known law of God. It's when my volition comes into play and I'm absolutely in rebellion with God. So 39% of the population believe in sin, they see sin, and they know it's a problem. Now, if you look at our culture right now, our culture is more sin conscious right now than I've seen it in a long, long time. We are looking into the backgrounds of people to see if they did anything, you know, years ago that we could label as sin, that we could hold them accountable for now. I've never seen this in our culture. Have you? It's phenomenal. People have this understanding of sin. Now, the one thing we like to do the most is we like to go to Starbucks and confess sin. Other people sin. We like to go to Starbucks and sit around and confess other people's sin. We like to get on the news and confess other people's sin. We like to tell about the awful thing, the ain't it awful story that somebody did is driving much of the culture now. Most of the posts that you see on the internet, on Facebook, are about some awful thing that somebody did that they ought to be held accountable for. Our culture, 39% of the people know there's sin and they're concerned about it. They're worried about it. Something ought to be done when other people sin. Now, when I sin, well, probably I didn't sin. It's a misunderstanding. You misunderstood. You just misunderstood. I, I, you misunderstood me. I, I, I would never, you know. But 40% but of the population is concerned about sin in the survey that Barna did. And this is a few years old, about, about six years old. 9% of the population, if you had 100 people, you would find nine of those people who are worried about sin, but they have asked for forgiveness for sin. Nine out of 100. 
And the reason that it's differentiated from the next one, I'll tell you in a second, but it's those people that have prayed a prayer for the forgiveness of sin. It happened to them sometime, someone, someplace, somehow. They prayed a prayer for forgiveness of sin. They received salvation as a free gift, and they went right back to what they were doing. If you talk to them, they'd say, I'm forgiven of sin. I'm forgiven for sin. I, my sins are forgiven. I ask for forgiveness. It's a free gift. I got the free gift. I'm good to go. By the way, our culture has really bought that from the church. You talk to most anybody about, if, if you said, do you believe in heaven? You know, about 60% say they believe in heaven. About 75% think they're going. Um, but the reason they are is because God is good and gracious and he forgives. And, and, and salvation is a free gift. We've said that over and over again. People bought that. The people who are in this 9% would say, salvation is a free gift. I prayed the prayer. I've got the gift. I'm good to go. It's like I've, been, I've got the barcode and I'll be scanned at heaven's door. I'm good to go. 24% of the population, and, 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 and truthfully, between when you get to thir- the 39% and the 24%, lots of these people have a relationship with the church. They go to some church or they're influenced by some church or they would, they would say, well, I'm somehow connected to some religious faith or belief because the predominant answer you still get in the culture, although it's rapidly dropping, is that people would identify as Christian. 24% of the population, of 24 out of 100 people, um, they are forgiven and active. You are those people. You're forgiven, and you said, well, I'm forgiven, I ought to get busy, do something. And so, you know, at the end of a Billy Graham crusade, Billy Graham would always pray, and he'd pray with people, and he'd tell them, read your Bible, talk to a friend, and go to a church that believes in Jesus. So you say, okay, all right then, I, I, I'm, I'm forgiven of my sin, I need to get to church, I need to read my Bible, I need to be active in the church. And when you come to the church, we've got a menu for you. We've got a menu for you. You come and you say, I just found Jesus. And we say, well, that's wonderful. You need to get busy serving at church. You ought to work in the children's program. You ought to work with the teens. Or you ought to get with the, with the adults. You ought, to, you ought to get busy working at the church. Believe me, I didn't come. Dave, now don't tell Dave I, I came and had, a, had a, uh, a testimonial against getting busy at church. But what Russell was saying to me, what Russell was saying to me was, Jerry, I know I've been forgiven, and I know I get busy at church, I'm really busy at church. You can count on me. I tithe. I, you, you can count on me. But boy, something's missing. Something's missing in my life. I got to know what's missing. And instead of saying to him, you know, Russell, you're right. Something's missing. What I said to him was, oh, Russell, you're fine. No, really, you're fine. That's called being the devil's advocate. Maybe literally. Because he was in that next category, six people out of a hundred you meet who have discovered a holy discontentment. Have you ever been there? You look at the church and say, wow, is that, is that, I was supposed to have a relationship with God. I got a relationship with these people, but 
Is this enough? And right now what's happening is that sometimes the church has tried to move over and make that 39% happy. You with me? Make that 39% happy and tell them, you're fine. God's gracious. He's good. It's all on him. He's got you covered. Jesus died for your sin. You're, you're, you're worried about sin, but God's got you covered. And we're trying to move them into that 9%. But the 24% of us who are active in church, sometimes, not all of us, but sometimes, we become wholly discontent. There's a discontentment in our heart that says there really should be more. There really ought to be more. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, sometimes when I wake up and I don't sense the presence of God, I wonder, have I missed it somewhere? And Russell was in that 6% and I didn't know it. What troubles me more is that sometimes... I find myself in that 6%, feeling discontent. I'm a busy district superintendent. I have a 2011 Camry, and I've put almost 200,000 miles on it, running up and down the I-5 corridor, ministering to churches, trying to resolve problems, and helping with issues, and, and all those kinds of things. And sometimes lately, I have felt this discontentment in my soul. Do you ever feel that just a kind of a holy discontentment that says there really, really ought to be more? Well, having seen the chart and having walked this way, I just know I need to brace myself. Because the road to transformed life is not through other people telling me I'm fine, but the road to a transformed life is to being broken by God. And I will just tell you, we don't want to do that. That's why there's only 3% there. We don't really want to be broken by God. Do you know how the broken by God process works? I've, I've been there before, so I kind of know, I got, I've got some of the t-shirts and some of the souvenirs from that place. But broken, broken by God happens when we get a really, really good look at ourselves from God's perspective. When we see ourselves really, really clearly the way that God sees us. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about, and I'm not talking about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I'm just talking about how are we content with the lives we live? How content are we to continue living just like we're living? if it brings us to a place of holy discontentment. So in order to help, help see how the broken process with God might work, here are some questions that John Wesley used to help people find themselves to this place. The first question is, am I consciously or unconsciously creating an impression that I'm better than I am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all acts and words and deeds, or do I exaggerate? Do I, confidently, do I confidentially pass on to another which was confidentially shared with me? Am I a slave to dress, to friends, to work, to habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, 
self-justifying, what, what A.W. Tozer called the hyphenated sins. Did the Bible live for me today? Did I give it time to speak to me? Am I enjoying prayer? When last did I speak about my faith? Do I pray about the way I spend my money? Do I go to bed on time? Do I get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not like other people, especially thank God that I'm not like a Pharisee who despised the publican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold resentment towards, or whom I disregard? If so, what do I plan to do about it? Do I grumble and complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? What, what happens in the process of saying to God, I am just desperate. I am just desperate to know you. And I am willing to look at myself in the mirror really, really, really honestly and stop lying to myself and others and see what's there. Um, Wesley had a process. He'd, he'd put you in a small group. Now, this is the small group that, uh, that you've got to be worried about because there's the questions they ask you in your small group. What sins have you knowingly committed since our last meeting? What temptation have you met with? How were you delivered? What have you thought, said, done, or which you doubt whether it was sin or not? Have you done, have you done nothing that you desire to keep secret? And would you like us to tell you plainly and directly what you think your sins might be? Tough group. All of this can lead to kind of just a brokenness. Just a broken place. But Barna said, in looking at people and talking to people who had peace with God, they all had gone through a place of being broken before God. What we do when people bump up against brokenness is we do what I did to Russell. Well, Russell, have you seen our menu? I think you should order from our menu. You should get busy in the church. You should get busy in children's ministry. But it doesn't resolve the problem. It doesn't answer the problem. The problem is, I have to make my heart honest before the Lord because the next step is surrender and submission to the will of God. C.S. Lewis said there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's the kind of people, the person that says to God, your will be done, and the kind of person that God says to them, your will be done. Only two kind of people in the world. But when we want to have peace with God, we have to come to a place of saying, I surrender all to you, Lord. All that I am, all that I have, all that I hope to be, my pride, my everything about me, I surrender it to you. I surrender. We debate in the church about which kind of worship is right. Is it contemporary worship or is it, is it old worship? Is it new worship? Is it have this beat or this tune? 
doesn't have anything to do with worship. It has to do with the songs we sing as an expression of worship. But the worship of God is surrender. I surrender. This has always been at the heart of the Wesleyan holiness message that is at the root of what it means to be part of our part of the tribe. This is the process of sanctification that occurs in the life of the believer. God helping us to be more like Jesus. But it doesn't happen without brokenness and surrender. And one of the things we don't like in this culture is we don't like things that make us uncomfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. So we've made church as comfortable as possible so people aren't uncomfortable. And yet, it's being uncomfortable that ultimately will result in my having peace with God. People who claim to have outstanding, radical peace with God are people who are one in 200 people that you would meet would say, I have total peace with God. They're so, the, the, the percentage was so small it didn't even make a blue line on the chart. And the 10th step along the way that happens after you find this deep love of God is a profound love for other people. Sometimes we try to love other people so we can prove to God that we love him. So we love other people saying, there, was that enough? I was at um, the Union Gospel Mission at 5 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I cooked eggs for 120. And then I shared the gospel with those that arrived early enough to hear it. About, there were probably about 80 people in the room when I shared the gospel at the Union Gospel Mission on uh, Friday morning at about 7.30. But I don't know inside, honestly, I don't completely know inside whether I was there for them or for me. Do you know what I mean? Was I just there so I could say to you, I'm the kind of guy who goes to the Union Gospel Mission on Friday mornings? Isn't that special? Or was I there for them? Was I there for them? So they might know the gospel that would pull them up out of the circumstance and situation that they're in. What happens is when we find an inordinate love for God, we discover that hand in hand in it, with it is an inordinate love for people. Now what was that that Jesus said when they said, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And I find that daunting. One of the things that happens when we begin to deal with our brokenness and we really see our brokenness, is that we can try to do a do-it-yourself project with it. Laverne Boyd um, died at, in his 80s. Um, Laverne was a pillar in, in our church in Twin Falls. Um, he, had, he had sold some property in Buell so that the, the land that the church in Twin Falls, Idaho, sits on could be purchased and, and he had not given the money to the church. That wasn't the deal. He sold, a, he sold a motel that he owned in that community so the church could buy the property. And, and he had gotten an annuity. He, they, give, they gave him an annuity for the rest of his life for the property that he sold so he could have the capital to buy the property the church is on. That was the deal that we made. Every year, Laverne would apologize to me for living so long. <laughs> I'm sorry, he'd say. I'm sorry. 
I didn't think I'd live this long. I didn't think the church would have to pay me this money, this much money. Well, I was looking at the treasury and knowing that Laverne was giving it all back anyway, pretty much. And, um, and Laverne just never had peace with God. He'd been around the church his whole life. And at the end of his life, the question was, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? His wife got Alzheimer's and he had to, he had to go across town to see her. He, we found out, before we started giving him a ride, we found out he was changing buses like three times in order to get from where he lived to where his wife was. That is hard to do in Twin Falls, Idaho. Just changing buses that many times is a trick. It's just not that big a place. It was taking him over an hour to get to his wife. She didn't recognize him when he came, but he went there every day. So one Sunday morning I said, what a good example he was of a man who had followed and taken, taken his wedding vows seriously. And so the next Sunday morning I'm at the pulpit and he comes up and he just bumps me out of the way. He's a really slender man. And he looked at the congregation and he said, don't follow my example. I'm not a good man. I know me. I know who I am. I know. And so the pastor said, I'm good. I'm not. And then he walked away and as he's walking down the aisle, I said, see how humble Laverne is. We should be like him. I was not going to let him have the last word. But as Laverne was dying, I held him in my arms and he told me, I'm not going to heaven. And I said, oh, yeah, you are. Oh, yeah, you are, Laverne. I said, if you're not going, I'm not going. No confidence. No confidence that God loved him, that he'd done enough. He remembered something he had done as a teenager or something he didn't do as a teenager, and he held all those things on his list, and I held him in my arms as he died, as he was dying. Sure, he was not going to heaven. I kept whispering in the ear, going to be a big surprise, Laverne, because God is good. He doesn't leave us in our brokenness, but he has to take us through brokenness in order for us to be whole. We have to see ourselves for all that's there. We have to drop the hyphenated sins of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-pride and self-justification. We have to let those things go so that we can see ourselves like we are, so we can find ourselves saying, I'm deeply in need of a Savior. I'm deeply in need of a Savior. If I just pray a prayer because I want to get the free gift and get on the bus... It'll never be anything that brings me peace with God. What brings me peace with God is to say, oh God, it's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so I would say if you're discontent, one of the things that happens in discontentment is that you begin to blame everybody else for your discontentment. What you need is not a menu at that point. What you need is a tour guide. Somebody to say to you, Walk with me this way, but brace yourself. You're about to be broken. And out of that brokenness will come surrender. And out of that surrender will come peace with God. Out of peace with God comes peace with me. And out of peace with me comes peace with you. But it's contrapuntal. It is absolutely 
contrapuntal. Now you're going, thank you very much, what's that? A contrapuntal is a musical term. Anybody, anybody know this word? Contrapuntal? Contrapuntal is two melodies played simultaneously, which are independent melodies played at exactly the same time, which make a more beautiful song than either one could make. But they have to be played together. They have to be played together. The, the, the church I pastored in Twin Falls, Idaho, I had uh, our pastor Brad Bennett, I told him what I wanted to do, and he put together two songs for me that are the contrapuntal over which our life has to be lived around. You see, here's the deal. Your reach will always exceed your grasp. The, the perfection of God, the goodness of God, the law of the Lord will always be higher than I can reach. It's why when Paul wrote to the Romans, he told them they couldn't get there by the law. If I could get there by the law, I wouldn't need Jesus. But also, underneath me is the grace of God. They, they learned it in the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. They calculated how many people would die in the building of the bridge, and they and I can't remember what the calculation was, but it was a lot of people would die in the building of the bridge. And someone said, what if we hung a circus net underneath the bridge while we're building it? And I, and I can't remember the statistic now. I didn't look it up. You can probably Google it. Not right now. <laughs> several, several dozens of people were saved in the building of the Golden Gate Bridge because when they slipped and fell, they fell into the net beneath the bridge. What we do in the church world and what we do in our lives is sometimes we play one side or the other. We're reaching, we're reaching for the law of the Lord and it's above us. We don't live it perfectly. Or we're just relaxing in the net below thinking, well, Jesus has got me covered. But peace with God is found as I participate in my rescue and my reach is to be more like Jesus. Oh, to be like you. Oh, to be like you, blessed Redeemer. Oh, to be like you. My reach is to be like Jesus. But I'm always going to be south of Mother Teresa somewhere. But God's grace has me covered. So I had, I had Pastor Brad put together two songs, and, and they played it in a contrapuntal. I wish I, could, I wish I had a copy of it so I could do it for you this morning. But there was a little chorus years ago that said, The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Psalms 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Everybody right now wants to make a law for themselves. They want to say, well, whatever I decide is right, whatever you decide is right for you, but what's right? No. What God decides is right is right. That's what's right. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's more to be desired than honey in the honeycomb. And the song that he companioned that with, and they played this that morning uh, together, was this one. Only by grace can you enter. Only by grace can you stand. Not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into your presence you call us, you call us to come. Into your presence you draw us. And now, by your grace, we come. Lord, 
If you marked our transgressions, who could stand? Thanks to your grace, we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. It's the contrapuntal nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you found yourself somewhere on the chart and you don't like where you were, I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is there is a transformational process that Christians have followed for years. It's the one that Jesus recommended to us. You look at yourself honestly. You let the Holy Spirit judge you and your heart correctly, and you look at what's there, and you don't do like Laverne, say, well, there's no hope for me. What you do is you surrender it to Jesus. So the best form of worship is this one. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. Now, I've done this several times in my life. I've surrendered. So it's not a once-for-all time deal. But when I find discontentment rolling in my soul, when I find myself being critical of others, when I find myself being judgmental of people, when I find myself having a bad attitude, when I see myself doing and being the ways that are not honoring to the Lord, I know that it's time to be broken again. And it's time to surrender. Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Try me, O Lord, and see if there's some wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, this morning I thank you for your word that challenges our hearts. It challenges me. I can find myself being discontent and grumbly and complainy, and man, can I confess other people's sins. But there's no peace there. There's no peace there with myself. There's no peace there with others. And I feel distant and cut off from you when I live that way. But you have provided for us the mirror of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts, saying, no, no, walk this way. And this morning I pray as we look at our hearts and we evaluate our lives and we examine our lives, that you would point out to us those places where we need to be broken. And out of our brokenness, we surrender. We surrender to your will. And we ask that you would work in our hearts by faith the wonderful sanctifying grace of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.